BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Minter The Card, A Story of Adventure in the Five Towns by Arnold Bennett Chapter 7 The Rescuer of Danes 1. It next happened that Denry began to suffer from the ravages of a malady which is almost worse than failure, namely a surfeit of success. The success was that of his Universal Thrift Club. This device, by which members, after subscribing one pound in weekly instalments, could at once get two pounds' worth of goods at nearly any large shop in the district, appealed with enormous force to the democracy of the five towns. There was no need whatever for Denry to spend money on advertising. The first members of the club did all the advertising, and made no charge for doing it. A stream of people, anxious to deposit money with Denry, in exchange for a card, never ceased to flow into his little office in St. Luke's Square. The stream, indeed, constantly thickened. It was a wonderful invention, the Universal Thrift Club, and Denry ought to have been happy, especially as his beard was growing strongly and evenly, and giving him the desired air of a man of wisdom and stability. But he was not happy, and the reason was that the popularity of the Thrift Club necessitated much bookkeeping, which he hated. He was an adventurer, in the old honest sense, and no clerk, and he found himself obliged not merely to buy large books of account, but to fill them with figures, and to do addition sums from page to page, and to fill up hundreds of cards, and to write out lists of shops, and to have long interviews with printers, whose proofs made him dream of lunatic asylums, and to reckon innumerable piles of small coins, and to assist his small office-boy in the great task of licking envelopes and stamps. Moreover, he was worried by shopkeepers. Every shopkeeper in the district now wanted to allow him tuppence in the shilling on the purchases of club members, and he had to collect all the subscriptions, in addition to his rents, 
and also to make personal preliminary inquiries as to the reputation of intending members. If he could have risen every day at 4 a.m., and stayed up working every night till 4 a.m., he might have got through most of the labour. He did, as a fact, come very near to this ideal, so near that one morning his mother said to him at her driest, "'I suppose I might as well sell your bedstead, Denry?' And there was no hope of improvement. Instead of decreasing, the work multiplied. What saved him was the fortunate death of lawyer Lawton. The aged solicitor's death put the town into mourning, and hung the church with black. But Denry, as a citizen, bravely bore the blow, because he was able to secure the services of Penkethman, lawyer Lawton's eldest clerk, who, after keeping the Lawton books and writing the Lawton letters for thirty-five years, was dismissed by young Lawton for being over fifty and behind the times. The desiccated bachelor was grateful to Denry. He called Denry Sir or rather he called Denry's suit of clothes, sir, for he had a vast respect for a well-cut suit. On the other hand, he maltreated the little office-boy, for he had always been accustomed to maltreating little office-boys, not seriously, but just enough to give them an interest in life. Penkethman enjoyed desks, ledgers, pens, ink, rulers, and blotting-paper. He could run from bottom to top of a column of figures more quickly than the fire-engine could run up Oldcastle Street— and his totals were never wrong. His gesture with a piece of blotting-paper, as he blotted off a total, was magnificent. He liked long hours, he was thoroughly used to overtime, and his boredom in his lodgings was such that he would often arrive at the office before the appointed hour. He asked thirty shillings a week, and Denry, in a mood of generosity, gave him thirty-one. He gave Denry his whole life, and put a meticulous order into the establishment— Denry secretly thought him a miracle, but up at the club at Port Hill he was content to call him the human machine. "'I wind him up every Saturday night with a sovereign, half a sovereign and a shilling,' said Denry, "'and he goes for a week. Compensated balance, adjusted for all temperatures, no escapement, jewelled in every hole, ticks in any position, made in England.' This jocularity of Denry's was a symptom that Denry's spirits were rising. The bearded youth was seen oftener in the streets behind his mule and his dog. The adventurer had indeed taken to the road again. After an emaciating period, he began once more to stoughten. He was the image of success. He was the picturesque card, whom everybody knew, and everybody had pleasure in greeting. In some sort he was rather like the flag on the town hall. And then a graver misfortune threatened. It arose out of the fact that though Denry was a financial genius, he was in no sense qualified to be a fellow of the Institute of Chartered Accountants. The notion that an excess of prosperity may bring ruin had never presented itself to him, until one day he discovered that out of over two thousand pounds there remained less than six hundred to his credit at the bank. This was at the stage of the thrift club, when the founder of the thrift club was bound under the rules to give credit. When the original lady member had paid in her two pounds or so, she was entitled to spend four pounds or so at shops. She did spend four pounds or so at shops, and Denry had to pay the shops. He was thus temporarily nearly two pounds out of pocket, and he had to collect that sum by trifling instalments. Multiply this case by five hundred, and you will understand the drain on Denry's capital. Multiply it by a thousand— and you will understand the very serious peril which overhung Denry. 
Multiply it by fifteen hundred, and you will understand that Denry had been culpably silly to inaugurate a mighty scheme like the Universal Thrift Club on a paltry capital of two thousand pounds. He had. In his simplicity he had regarded two thousand pounds as boundless wealth. Although new subscriptions poured in, the drain grew more distressing. Yet he could not persuade himself to refuse new members. He stiffened his rules, and compelled members to pay at his office, instead of on their own doorsteps. He instituted fines for irregularity. But nothing could stop the progress of the Universal Thrift Club, and disaster approached. Denry felt as though he was being pushed nearer and nearer to the edge of a precipice by a tremendous multitude of people. At length, very much against his inclination, he put up a card in his window, but no new members could be accepted until further notice, pending the acquisition of larger offices and other arrangements. For the shrewd it was a confession of failure, and he knew it. Then the rumour began to form, and to thicken, and to spread, that Denry's famous Universal Thrift Club was unsound at the core, and that the teeth of those who had bitten the apple would be set on edge and Denry saw that something great, something decisive, must be done, and done with rapidity. 2. His thoughts turned to the Countess of Chell. The original attempt to engage her moral support in aid of the thrift club had ended in a dangerous fiasco. Denry had been beaten by circumstances, and though he had emerged from the defeat with credit, he had no taste for defeat. He disliked defeat, even when it was served with jam and his indomitable thoughts turned to the Countess again. He put it to himself in this way, scratching his head. "'I've got to get hold of that woman, and that's all about it.' The Countess, at this period, was busying herself with the policeman of the five towns. In her exhaustless passion for philanthropy, bazaars, and platforms, she had already dealt with orphans, the aged, the blind— Potter's asthma, creches, churches, chapels, schools, economic cookery, the smoke nuisance, country holidays, Christmas puddings and blankets, healthy musical entertainments and barmaids. The excellent and beautiful creature was suffering from a dearth of subjects when the policeman occurred to her. She made the benevolent discovery that policemen were overworked, underpaid, courteous and trustworthy public servants, and that our lives depended on them and from this discovery it naturally followed that policemen deserved her energetic assistance, which assistance resulted in the erection of a policeman's institute at Hanbridge, the chief of the five towns. At the institute, policemen would be able to play at draughts, read the papers, and drink everything non-alcoholic at prices that defied competition, and the institute also conferred other benefits on those whom all the five mayors of the five towns fell into the way of describing as the stalwart guardians of the law. The institute, having been built, had to be opened with due splendour and ceremony, and naturally the Countess of Chell was the person to open it, since without her it would never have existed. The solemn day was a day in March, and the hour was fixed for three o'clock, and the place was the large hall of the institute itself, behind Crown Square, which is the Trafalgar Square of Hanbridge. The Countess was to drive over from Sneyd, had the epoch been ten years later, she would have motored over, but probably that would not have made any difference to what happened. In relating what did happen, I confine myself to facts, eschewing imputations. 
it is a truism that life is full of coincidences, but whether these events comprised a coincidence or not, each reader must decide for himself, according to his cynicism, or his faith in human nature. The facts are, first, that Denry called one day at the house of Mrs. Kemp, a little lower down Broom Street, Mrs. Kemp being friendly with Mrs. Machin, and the mother of Jock, the Countess's carriage-footman, whom Denry had known from boyhood. Second, that a few days later, when Jock came over to see his mother, Denry was present, and that subsequently Denry and Jock went for a stroll together in the cemetery, the principal resort of strollers in Bursley. Third, that on the afternoon of the opening ceremony, the Countess's carriage broke down in Snaid Vale, two miles from Snaid and three miles from Hambridge. Fourth, that five minutes later, Denry, in all his best clothes, drove up behind his mule. Fifth, that Denry drove right past the breakdown, apparently not noticing it. Sixth, that Jock, touching his hat to Denry as if to a stranger, for, of course, while on duty a footman must be dead to all humanities, said, "'Excuse me, sir,' and so caused Denry to stop. These are the simple facts. Denry looked round, with that careless half-turn of the upper part of the body, which drivers of elegant equipages affect when their attention is called to something trifling behind them. The mule also looked round. It was a habit of the mules. And if the dog had been there, the dog would have shown an even livelier inquisitiveness. But Denry had left the faithful animal at home. "'Good afternoon, Countess,' he said, raising his hat, and trying to express surprise, pleasure, and imperturbability all at once. The Countess of Chell, who was standing in the road, raised her lorgnon, which was attached to the end of a tortoiseshell pole about a foot long, and regarded Denry. This lorgnon was a new device of hers, and it was already having the happy effect of increasing the sale of long-handled lorgnons throughout the five towns.' "'Oh, it's you, is it?' said the Countess. "'I see you've grown a beard.' It was just this easy familiarity that endeared her to the district. As observant people put it, you never knew what she would say next, and yet she never compromised her dignity. "'Yes,' said Denry. "'Have you had an accident?' "'No,' said the Countess, bitterly. "'I'm doing this for idle amusement.' The horses had been taken out, and were grazing by the roadside like common horses. The coachman was dipping his skirts in the mud as he bent down in front of the carriage and twisted the pole to and fro and round about and round about. The footman, Jock, was industriously watching him. "'It's the pole-pin, sir,' said Jock. Denry descended from his own hammercloth. The Countess was not smiling. It was the first time that Denry had seen her without an efficient smile on her face. "'Have you got to be anywhere particular?' he asked. Many ladies would not have understood what he meant, but the Countess was used to the five towns. "'Yes,' said she, "'I've got to be somewhere particular. I've got to be at the Police Institute at three o'clock particular, Mr. Machin, and I shan't be. I'm late now. We've been here ten minutes.' The Countess was rather too often late for public ceremonies. Nobody informed her of the fact. Everybody, on the contrary, assiduously pretended that she had arrived the very second but she was well aware that she had a reputation for unpunctuality. Ordinarily, being too hurried to invent a really clever excuse, she would assert lightly that something had happened to her carriage. And now something in truth had happened to her carriage, but who would believe it in the police institute? 
"'If you'll come with me, I'll guarantee to get you there by three o'clock,' said Denry. The road thereabouts was lonely. A canal ran parallel with it at a distance of fifty yards, and on the canal the boat was moving in the direction of Hanbridge at the rate of a mile an hour. Such was the only other vehicle in sight. The outskirts of Knype, the nearest town, did not begin until at least a mile further on, and the Countess, dressed for the undoing of mares and other unimpressionable functionaries, could not possibly have walked even half a mile in that rich dark mud. She thanked him, and without a word to her servants, took the seat beside him. 3. Immediately the mule began to trot, the Countess began to smile again. Relief and content were painted upon her handsome features. Denry soon learnt that she knew all about mules, or almost all. She told him how she had ridden hundreds of miles on mules in the Apennines, where there were no roads, and only mules, goats, and flies could keep their feet on the steep, stony paths. She said that a good mule was worth forty pounds in the Apennines, more than a horse of similar quality. In fact, she was very sympathetic about mules. Denry saw that he must drive with as much style as possible and he tried to remember all that he had picked up from a book concerning the proper manner of holding the reins. For in everything that appertained to riding and driving, the Countess was an expert. In the season she hunted once or twice a week with the North Staffordshire hounds, and the signal had stated that she was a fearless horsewoman. It made this statement one day when she had been thrown and carried to Snade senseless. The mule, too, seemingly conscious of its responsibilities and its high destiny, put its best foot foremost, and behaved in general like a mule that knew the name of its great-grandfather. It went through Knype in admirable style, not swerving at the steam-cars, nor exciting itself about the railway bridge. A photographer, who stood at his door manoeuvring a large camera, startled it momentarily, until it remembered that it had seen a camera before. The Countess, who wondered why on earth a photographer should be capering round a tripod in a doorway, turned to inspect the man with her lorgnon. They were now coursing up the Calden Bank towards Hanbridge. They were already within the boundaries of Hanbridge, and a pedestrian here and there recognised the Countess. You can hide nothing from the quidnunc of Hanbridge. Moreover, when a quidnunc in the streets of Hanbridge sees somebody famous or striking or notorious— he does not pretend that he has seen nobody. He points unmistakably to what he has observed, if he has a companion, and if he has no companion, he stands still and stares with such honest intensity that the entire street stands and stares too. Occasionally you may see an entire street standing and staring, without any idea of what it is staring at. As the equipage dashingly approached the busy centre of Hambridge, the region of fine shops, public-houses, hotels, halls, and theatres, more and more of the inhabitants knew that Iris, as they affectionately called her, was driving with a young man in a tumble-down little Victoria behind a mule whose ears flapped like an elephant's. Denry being far less renowned in Hanbridge than in his native Bursley, few persons recognised him. After the Victoria had gone by— People who had heard the news too late rushed from shops, and gazed at the Countess's back, as at a fading dream, until the insistent clang of a car-bell made them jump again to the footpath. At length Denry and the Countess could see the clock of the old town hall in Crown Square, and it was a minute to three. They were less than a minute off the Institute. 
"'There you are,' said Denry proudly. Three miles if it's a yard, in seventeen minutes. For a mule it's none so dusty.' And such was the Countess's knowledge of the language of the five towns, that she instantly divined the meaning of even that phrase, "'none so dusty.' They swept into Crown Square grandly. And then, with no warning, the mule suddenly applied all the automatic brakes which a mule has, and stopped. "'Oh, Lord!' sighed Denry. He knew the cause of that arresting. A large squad of policemen, a perfect regiment of policemen, was moving across the north side of the square, in the direction of the Institute. Nothing could have seemed more reassuring, less harmful than that band of policemen, off duty for the afternoon, and collected together for the purpose of giving a hearty and policemanly welcome to their benefactress, the Countess. But the mule had his own views about policemen. In the early days of Denry's ownership of him, he had nearly always shied at the spectacle of a policeman. He would tolerate steam-rollers, and even falling kites, but a policeman had ever been antipathetic to him. Denry, by patience and punishment, had gradually brought him round almost to the Countess's view of policemen, namely, that they were a courteous and trustworthy body of public servants, not to be treated as scarecrows or the dregs of society. At any rate, the mule had of late months practically ceased to set his face against the policing of the five towns, and when he was on his best behaviour, he would ignore a policeman completely. But there were several hundreds of policemen in that squad, the majority of all the policemen in the five towns, and clearly the mule considered that Denry, in confronting him with several hundred policemen simultaneously, had been presuming upon his good nature. The mule's ears were saying agitatedly, "'A line must be drawn somewhere, and I have drawn it where my forefeet now are.' The mule's ears soon drew together a little crowd. It occurred to Denry that if mules were so wonderful in the Apennines, the reason must be that there are no policemen in the Apennines. It also occurred to him that something must be done to this mule. "'Well,' said the Countess, inquiringly, it was a challenge to him to prove that he, and not the mule, was in charge of the expedition. He briefly explained the mule's idiosyncrasy, as it were apologising for its bad taste in objecting to public servants whom the Countess cherished. "'They'll be out of sight in a moment,' said the Countess, and both she and Denry tried to look as if the Victoria had stopped in that special spot for a special reason, and that the mule was a pattern of obedience. Nevertheless, the little crowd was growing a little larger. "'Now,' said the Countess encouragingly, the tale of the regiment of policemen had vanished towards the Institute. <coughs> Denry persuaded the mule. No response from those forefeet. "'Perhaps I'd better get out and walk,' the Countess suggested. The crowd was becoming inconvenient, and had even begun to offer unsolicited hints as to the proper management of mules. The crowd was also saying to itself, "'It's her! It's her! It's her!' meaning that it was the Countess. "'Oh, no,' said Denry, "'it's all right,' and he caught the mule one over the head with his whip. The mule, stung into action, dashed away, and the crowd scattered as if blown to pieces by the explosion of a bomb. Instead of pursuing a right line, the mule turned within a radius of its own length, swinging the Victoria round after it, as though the Victoria had been a kettle attached to it with string, and Countess Denry and Victoria were wrapped with miraculous swiftness away, 
not at all towards the policeman's institute but down longshore road which is tolerably steep they were pursued but ineffectually for the mule had bolted and was winged they fortunately came into contact with nothing except a large barrow of carrots turnips and cabbages which an old woman was wheeling up longshore road the concussion upset the barrow half filled the victoria with vegetables and for a second stayed the mule but no real harm seemed to have been done and the mule proceeded with vigour then the countess noticed that denry was not using his right arm which swung about rather uselessly i must have knocked my elbow against the barrow he muttered his face was pale give me the reins said the countess i think i can turn the brute up here he said and he did in fact neatly divert the mule up birches street which is steeper even than longshore road the mule for a few instants pretended that all gradients up or down were equal before its angry might but birches street has the slope of a house-roof presently the mule walked and then it stood still and half birches street emerged to gaze for the countess's attire was really very splendid i'll leave this here and we'll walk back said denry you won't be late that is nothing to speak of the institute is just round the top here you don't mean to say that you're going to let that mule beat you exclaimed the countess i was only thinking of your being late oh bother said she your mule may be ruined the horse-trainer in her was aroused and then my arm said denry shall i drive back the countess suggested oh do said denry keep on up the street and then to the left they changed places and two minutes later she had brought the mule to an obedient rest in front of the police institute which was all newly red with terra-cotta the main body of policemen had passed into the building but two remained at the door and the mule haughtily tolerated them the countess dispatched one to longshaw road to settle with the old woman whose vegetables they had brought away with them the other policeman who owing to the countess's philanthropic energy had received a course of instruction in first aid arranged a sling for denry's arm and then the countess said that denry ought certainly to go with her to the inauguration ceremony the policeman whistled a boy to hold the mule denry picked a carrot out of the complex folds of the countess's rich costume and the countess and her saviour entered the portico and were therein met by an imposing group of important male personages several of whom wore mayoral chains strange tales of what had happened to the countess had already flown up to the institute and the chief expression on the faces of the group seemed to be one of astonishment that she still lived four denry observed that the countess was now a different woman she had suddenly put on a manner to match her costume which in certain parts was stiff with embroidery from the informal companion and the tamer of mules she had miraculously developed into the public celebrity the peeress of the realm and the inaugurator general of philanthropic schemes and buildings not one of the important male personages but would have looked down on denry and yet while treating denry as a jolly equal the countess with all her embroidered and stiff politeness somehow looked down on the important male personages and they knew it and the most curious thing was that they seemed rather to enjoy it the one who seemed to enjoy it the least was sir jehoshaphat dane a white-bearded pillar of terrific imposingness sir g 
as he was then beginning to be called, had recently been knighted, by way of reward for his enormous benefactions to the community. In the role of philanthropist he was really much more effective than the Countess. But he was not young, he was not pretty, he was not a woman, and his family had not helped to rule England for generations, at any rate, so far as anybody knew. He had made more money than had ever before been made by a single brain in the manufacture of earthenware, and he had given more money to public causes than a single pocket had ever before given in the five towns. He had never sought municipal honours, considering himself to be somewhat above such trifles. He was the first purely local man to be knighted in the five towns. Even before the bestowal of the knighthood his sense of humour had been deficient, and immediately afterwards it had vanished entirely. Indeed, he did not miss it. He divided the population of the kingdom into two classes, the titled and the untitled. With Sir G, either you were titled or you weren't. He lumped all the untitled together, and to be just to his logical faculty, he lumped all the titled together. There were various titles, Sir G admitted that, but a title was a title, and therefore all titles were practically equal. The Duke of Norfolk was one titled individual, and Sir G was another. The fine difference between them might be perceptible to the titled, and might properly be recognised by the titled when the titled were among themselves. But for the untitled, such a difference ought not to exist, and could not exist. Thus, for Sir G, there were two titled beings in the group, the Countess and himself. The Countess and himself formed one caste in the group, and the rest another caste. And although the Countess, in her punctilious demeanour towards him, gave due emphasis to his title, he returning more than due emphasis to hers, he was not precisely pleased by the undertones of suave condescension that characterised her greeting of him, as well as her greeting of the others. Moreover, he had known Denry as a clerk of Mr. Duncalf's, for Mr. Duncalf had done a lot of legal work for him in the past. He looked upon Denry as an upstart, a capering mountebank, and he strongly resented Denry's familiarity with the Countess. He further resented Denry's sling, which gave to Denry an interesting romantic aspect, despite his beard, and he more than all resented that Denry should have rescued the Countess from a carriage accident by means of his preposterous mule. Whenever the Countess, in the preliminary chatter, referred to Denry, or looked at Denry in recounting the history of her adventures, Sir G's soul squirmed, and his body sympathised with his soul. Something in him that was more powerful than himself compelled him to do his utmost to reduce Denry to a moral pulp, to flatten him, to ignore him, or to exterminate him by the application of ice. This tactic was no more lost on the Countess than it was on Denry, and the Countess foiled it at every instant. In truth, there existed between the Countess and Sir G., a rather hot rivalry in philanthropy, and the cultivation of the higher welfare of the district. He regarded himself, and she regarded herself, as the most brightly glittering star of the five towns. When the Countess had finished the recital of her journey, and the faces of the group had gone through all the contortions proper to express terror, amazement, admiration, and manly sympathy, Sir G. took the lead, coughed, and said in his elaborate style, 
"'Before we adjourn to the hall, will not your ladyship take a little refreshment?' "'Oh, no, thanks,' said the Countess. "'I'm not a bit upset.' Then she turned to the ensling Denry, and with concern added, "'But will you have something?' If she could have foreseen the consequences of her question, she might never have put it. Still, she might have put it just the same. Denry paused an instant, and an old habit rose up in him. "'Oh, no, thanks,' he said, and turning deliberately to Sir G, he added, "'Will you?' This, of course, was mere crude insolence to the titled philanthropic Whitebeard, but it was by no means the worst of Denry's behaviour. The group, every member of the group, distinctly perceived a movement of Denry's left hand towards Sir G. It was the very slightest movement, a wavering, a nothing. It would have had no significance whatever but for one fact. Denry's left hand still held the carrot. Everybody exhibited the most marvellous self-control, and everybody except Sir G. was secretly charmed, for Sir G. had never inspired love. It is remarkable how local philanthropists are unloved locally. The Countess, without blenching, gave the signal for what Sir G. called the adjournment to the hall. Nothing might have happened. Yet everything had happened. 5. Next, Denry found himself seated on the temporary platform, which had been erected in the large games hall of the Policeman's Institute. The Mayor of Hanbridge was in the chair, and he had the Countess on his right, and the Mayoress of Bursley on his left. Other mayoral chains blazed in the centre of the platform, together with fine hats of mayoresses, and uniforms of police superintendents and captains of fire-brigades. Denry's sling also contributed to the effectiveness. He was placed behind the Countess. Policemen, looking strange without helmets, and their wives, sweethearts, and friends, filled the hall to its fullest. Enthusiasm was rife and strident, and there was only one little sign that the untoward had occurred. That little sign was an empty chair in the first row near the Countess. Sir G., a prey to sudden indisposition, had departed. He had somehow faded away while the personages were climbing the stairs. He had faded away amid the expressed regrets of those few who, by chance, saw him in the act of fading. But even these bore up manfully. The high humour of the gathering was not eclipsed. Towards the end of the ceremony came the votes of thanks, and the principal of these was the vote of thanks to the Countess, prime cause of the Institute. It was proposed by the superintendent of Hanbridge Police. Other personages had wished to propose it, but the stronger right of the Hanbridge superintendent, as chief officer of the largest force of constables in the five towns, could not be disputed. He made a few facetious references to the episode of the Countess's arrival, and brought the house down by saying that if he did his duty he would arrest both the Countess and Denry for driving to the common danger. When he sat down, amid tempestuous applause, there was a hitch. According to the official programme, Sir Jehoshaphat Dane was to have seconded the vote, and Sir G. was not there. All that remained of Sir G. was his chair. The Mayor of Hanbridge looked round about, trying swiftly to make up his mind what was to be done, and Denry heard him whisper to another Mayor for advice. "'Shall I do it?' Denry whispered, and by at once rising relieved the Mayor from the necessity of coming to a decision. Impossible to say why Denry should have risen as he did, without any warning. 
Ten seconds before, five seconds before, he himself had not the dimmest idea that he was about to address the meeting. All that can be said is that he was subject to these attacks of the unexpected. Once on his legs he began to suffer, for he had never before been on his legs on a platform, or even on a platform at all. He could see nothing whatever except a cloud that had mysteriously and with frightful suddenness filled the room, and through this cloud he could feel that hundreds and hundreds of eyes were piercingly fixed upon him. A voice was saying inside him, "'What a fool you are! What a fool you are! I always told you you were a fool!' And his heart was beating as it had never beat, and his forehead was damp, his throat distressingly dry, and one foot nervously tap-tapping on the floor. This condition lasted for something like ten hours, during which time the eyes continued to pierce the cloud and him with patient, obstinate cruelty. Denry heard someone talking. It was himself. The superintendent had said, "'I have very great pleasure in proposing the vote of thanks to the Countess of Chell.' And so Denry heard himself saying, "'I have very great pleasure in seconding the vote of thanks to the Countess of Chell.' He could not think of anything else to say, and there was a pause, a real pause, not a pause merely in Denry's sick imagination. Then the cloud was dissipated, and Denry himself said to the audience of policemen, with his own natural tone, smile, and gesture, colloquially, informally, comically, "'Now then, move along there, please. I'm not going to say any more.' And for a signal he put his hands in the position for applauding, and sat down. He had tickled the stout ribs of every bobby in the place. The applause surpassed all previous applause. The most staid ornaments on the platform had to laugh. People nudged each other, and explained that it was that chap Machin from Bursley, as if to imply that that chap Machin from Bursley never let a day pass without doing something striking and humorous. The mayor was still smiling when he put the vote to the meeting, and the countess was still smiling when she responded. Afterwards, in the portico, when everything was over, Denry exercised his right to remain in charge of the countess. They escaped from the personages by going out to look for her carriage and neglecting to return. There was no sign of the Countess's carriage, but Denry's mule and Victoria were waiting in a quiet corner. "'May I drive you home?' he suggested. But she would not. She said that she had a call to pay before dinner, and that her broom would surely arrive the very next minute. "'Will you come and have tea at the Sub Rosa?' Denry next asked. "'The Sub Rosa?' questioned the Countess. "'Well,' said Denry, "'that's what we call the new tea-room that's just been opened round here.' He indicated a direction. "'It's quite a novelty in the five towns.' The Countess had a passion for tea. "'They have splendid china tea,' said Denry. "'Well,' said the Countess, "'I suppose I may as well go through with it.' At the moment her broom drove up, she instructed her coachman to wait next to the mule and Victoria. Her demeanour had cast off all its similarity to her dress. It appeared to imply that, as she had begun with a mad escapade, she ought to finish with another one. Thus the Countess and Denry went to the tea-shop, and Denry ordered tea and paid for it. There was scarcely a customer in the place, and the few who were fortunate enough to be present had not the wit to recognise the Countess. The proprietress did not recognise the Countess. Later, when it became known that the Countess had actually patronised the Sub Rosa, 
Half the ladies of Hanbridge were almost ill from the sheer disgust that they had not heard of it in time. It would have been so easy for them to be there, taking tea at the next table to the Countess, and observing her choice of cakes, and her manner of holding a spoon, and whether she removed her gloves or retained them in the case of a meringue. It was an opportunity lost that would in all human probability never occur again. And in the discreet corner which she had selected, the Countess fired a sudden shot at Denry. "'How did you get all those details about the state rooms at Snade?' she asked. Upon which opening the conversation became lively. The same evening Denry called at the signal office, and gave an order for a half-page advertisement of the Five Towns Universal Thrift Club, patroness the Countess of Chell. The advertisement informed the public— that the club had now made arrangements to accept new members. Besides the order for a half-page advertisement, Denry also gave many interesting and authentic details about the historic drive from Snade Vale to Hanbridge. The next day the signal was simply full of Denry and the Countess. It had a large photograph, taken by a photographer on Calden Bank, which showed Denry actually driving the Countess, and the Countess's face was full in the picture. It presented, too, an excellently appreciative account of Denry's speech, and it congratulated Denry on his first appearance in the public life of the Five Towns. In parenthesis, it sympathised with Sir G. in his indisposition. In short, Denry's triumph obliterated the memory of his previous triumphs. It obliterated, too, all rumours adverse to the thrift club. In a few days he had a thousand new members. Of course this addition only increased his liabilities, but now he could obtain capital on fair terms, and he did obtain it. A company was formed. The Countess had a few shares in this company. So, strangely, had Jock and his companion the coachman. Not the least of the mysteries was that when Denry reached his mother's cottage on the night of the tea with the Countess, his arm was not in a sling, and showed no symptom of having been damaged. End of chapter 7「This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Minter THE CARD, A STORY OF ADVENTURE IN THE FIVE TOWNS By Arnold Bennett CHAPTER Eight, RAISING A WIGWAM 1. A still young man, his age was thirty, with a short, strong beard, peeping out over the fur collar of a vast overcoat, emerged from a cab at the snowy corner of St. Luke's Square and Broom Street, and paid the cabman with a gesture that indicated both wealth and habit of command. And the cabman, who had driven him over from Hanbridge through the winter night, responded accordingly. Few people take cabs in the five towns. There are few cabs to take. If you are going to a party, you may order one in advance by telephone, reconciling yourself also in advance to the expense. But to hail a cab in the street, without forethought, and jump into it as carelessly as you would jump into a tram, this is by very few done. The young man with the beard did it frequently, 
which proved that he was fundamentally ducal. He was encumbered with a large and rather heavy parcel as he walked down Broom Street, and moreover the footpath of Broom Street was exceedingly dirty, and yet no one acquainted with the circumstances of his life would have asked why he had dismissed the cab before arriving at his destination, because everyone knew. The reason was that this ducal person, with gestures of command, dared not drive up to his mother's door in a cab oftener than about once a month. He opened that door with a latch-key. A modern lock was almost the only innovation that he had succeeded in fixing on his mother, and stumbled with his unwieldy parcel into the exceedingly narrow lobby. "'Is that you, Denry?' called a feeble voice from the parlour. "'Yes,' said he and went into the parlour, hat, fur coat, parcel, and all. Mrs. Machin, in a shawl and an antimacassar over the shawl, sat close to the fire, and leaning towards it. She looked cold and ill. Although the parlour was very tiny, and the fire comparatively large, the structure of the grate made it impossible that the room should be warm, as all the heat went up the chimney. If Mrs. Machin had sat on the roof, and put her hands over the top of the chimney, she would have been much warmer than at the grate. "'You aren't in bed?' Denry queried. "'Can't you see?' said his mother. And, indeed, to ask a woman who was obviously sitting up in a chair whether she was in bed did seem somewhat absurd. She added, less sarcastically, "'I was expecting you every minute. Where have you had your tea?' "'Oh,' he said lightly, "'in Hanbridge.' An untruth. He had not had his tea anywhere, but he had dined richly at the new Hotel Metropole in Hanbridge. "'What have you got there?' asked his mother. "'A present for you,' said Denry. "'It's your birthday to-morrow.' "'I don't know as I want reminding of that,' murmured Mrs. Machin. But when he had undone the parcel and held up the contents before her, she exclaimed, "'Bless us!' The staggered tone was an admission that for once, in a way, he had impressed her. It was a magnificent sealskin mantle, longer than sealskin mantles usually are. It was one of those articles, the owner of which can say, "'Nobody can have a better than this. I don't care who she is.' It was worth, in monetary value, all the plain shabby clothes on Mrs. Machin's back, and all her very ordinary best clothes upstairs and all the furniture in the entire house, and perhaps all Denry's dundarkle wardrobe too, except his fur coat. If the entire contents of the cottage, with the aforesaid exception, had been put up to auction, they would not have realised enough to pay for that sealskin mantle. Had it been anything but a sealskin mantle, and equally costly, Mrs. Machin would have abraded. But a sealskin mantle is not showy, it goes with any and every dress and bonnet, and the most respectable, the most conservative, the most austere woman may find legitimate pleasure in wearing it. A sealskin mantle is the sole luxurious ostentation that a woman of Mrs. Machin's temperament, and there are many such in the five towns and elsewhere, will conscientiously permit herself. "'Try it on,' said Denry. She rose weakly and tried it on. It fitted as well as a sealskin mantle can fit. "'My word, it's warm,' she said. This was her sole comment. "'Keep it on,' said Denry. 
His mother's glance withered the suggestion. "'Where are you going?' he asked, as she left the room. "'To put it away,' said she. "'I must get some moth powder to-morrow.' He protested with inarticulate noises, removed his own furs, which he threw down onto the old worn-out sofa, and drew a Windsor chair up to the fire. After a while his mother returned, and sat down in her rocking-chair, and began to shiver again under the shawl and the antimacassar. The lamp on the table lighted up the left side of her face, and the right side of his. "'Look here, mother,' said he, "'you must have a doctor.' "'I shall have no doctor. "'You've got influenza, and it's a very tricky business, influenza is. "'You never know where you are with it.' "'You can call it influenza if you like,' said Mrs. Machin. "'There was no influenza in my young days. "'We called a cold a cold.' "'Well,' said Denry, "'you aren't well, are you?' "'I never said I was,' she answered grimly. "'No,' said Denry, "'with the triumphant ring of one who is about to devastate an enemy, "'and you never will be in this rotten old cottage.' "'This was reckoned a very good class of house "'when your father and I came into it, "'and it's always been kept in repair. "'It was good enough for your father, "'and it's good enough for me. "'I don't see myself flitting.' "'but some folks have gotten so grand. "'As for health, old Reuben next door is ninety-one. "'How many people over ninety are there in those gimcrack houses up by the park, I should like to know?' "'Denry could argue with any one, save his mother. "'Always, when he was about to reduce her to impotence, "'she fell on him thus, and rolled him in the dust. "'Still he began again. "'Do we pay four and sixpence a week for this cottage, or don't we?' he demanded. "'And always have done,' said Mrs. Machin. "'I should like to see the landlord put it up,' she added, formidably, as if to say, "'I'd landlord him if he tried to put my rent up.' "'Well,' said Denry, "'here we are, living in a four-and-six-a-week cottage. "'And do you know how much I'm making? "'I'm making two thousand pounds a year. "'That's what I'm making.' "'A second wilful deception of his mother. "'As managing director of the Five Towns Universal Thrift Club, as proprietor of the majority of its shares, as its absolute autocrat, he was making very nearly four thousand a year. Why could he not as easily have said four as two to his mother? The simple answer is that he was afraid to say four. It was as if he ought to blush before his mother for being so plutocratic, his mother who had passed most of her life in hard toil to gain a few shillings a week. Four thousand seemed so fantastic. And, in fact, the thrift club, which he had invented in a moment, had arrived at a prodigious success, with its central offices in Hanbridge, and its branch offices in the other four towns, and its scores of clerks and collectors, presided over by Mr. Penkethman. It had met with opposition. The mighty said that Denry was making an unholy fortune under the guise of philanthropy, and to be on the safe side the Countess of Chell had resigned her official patronage of the club, and given her shares to the Pye Hill Infirmary, which had accepted the high dividends on them without the least protest. As for Denry, he said that he had never set out to be a philanthropist, nor posed as one, and that his unique intention was to grow rich by supplying a want like the rest of them, and that anyhow there was no compulsion to belong to his thrift club. Then letters in his defence from representatives of the thousands and thousands of members of the club rained into the columns of the signal, 
for Denry was the most discussed personage in the county. It was stated that such thrift clubs, under various names, existed in several large towns in Yorkshire and Lancashire. This disclosure rehabilitated Denry completely in general esteem, for whatever obtains in Yorkshire and Lancashire must be right for Staffordshire. But it rather dashed Denry, who was obliged to admit to himself that, after all, he had not invented the thrift club. Finally, the hundreds of tradesmen who had bound themselves to allow a discount of tuppence in the shilling to the club, sole source of the club's dividends, had endeavoured to revolt. Denry effectually cowed them by threatening to establish cooperative stores. There was not a single cooperative store in the five towns. They knew he would have the wild audacity to do it. Thenceforward, the progress of the thrift club had been unruffled. Denry waxed amazingly in importance. His mule died. He dared not buy a proper horse and dog-cart, because he dared not bring such an equipage to the front door of his mother's four-and-sixpenny cottage. So he had taken to cabs. In all exterior magnificence and lavishness he equalled even the great Harold Etches, of whom he had once been afraid. And like Etches he became a famous habitué of Flandidno Pier. But whereas Etches lived with his wife in a superb house at Bleakridge, Denry lived with his mother in a ridiculous cottage in ridiculous Broom Street. He had a regiment of acquaintances, and he accepted a lot of hospitality, but he could not return it at Broom Street. His greatness fizzled into nothing in Broom Street. It stopped short and sharp at the corner of St. Luke's Square, where he left his cabs. He could do nothing with his mother. If she was not still going out as a seamstress, the reason was not that she was not ready to go out, but that her old clients had ceased to send for her. And could they be blamed for not employing at three shillings a day the mother of a young man who wallowed in thousands sterling? Denry had essayed over and over again to instil reason into his mother, and he had invariably failed. She was too independent, too profoundly rooted in her habits, and her character had more force than his. Of course, he might have left her and set up a suitably gorgeous house of his own, but he would not. In fact, they were a remarkable pair. On this eve of her birthday, he had meant to cajole her into some step, to win her by an appeal, basing his argument on her indisposition. But he was being beaten off once more. The truth was that a cajoling, caressing tone could not be long employed towards Mrs. Machin. She was not persuasive herself, nor favourable to persuasiveness in others. "'Well,' said she, "'if you're making two thousand a year, you can spend it or save it as you like, though you'd better save it. You never know what may happen in these days. There was a man dropped half a crown down a grid opposite only the day before yesterday.' Denry laughed. "'Aye.' she said. You can laugh. There's no doubt about one thing, he said. You ought to be in bed. You ought to stay in bed for two or three days at least. Yes, she said, and who's going to look after the house while I'm moping between blankets? You can have Rose Chud in, he said. No, said she. I'm not going to have any woman rummaging about my house and me in bed. "'You know perfectly well she's been practically starving since her husband died, "'and as she's going out charring, why can't you have her and put a bit of bread into her mouth?' "'Because I won't have her, neither her nor anyone. "'There's naught to prevent you giving some of your two thousand a year, if you are mind. 
"'but I see no reason for my house being turned upside down by her, "'even if I have got a bit of a cold.' "'You're an unreasonable old woman,' said Denry. "'Happen I am,' said she. "'There can't be two wise ones in a family. "'But I'm not going to give up this cottage, "'and as long as I'm standing on my feet, "'I'm not going to pay anyone for doing what I can do better myself.' "'A pause. "'And so you needn't think it. "'You can't come round me with a fur mantle.' She retired to rest. On the following morning he was very glum. "'You needn't be so glum,' she said. But she was rather pleased at his glumness, for in him glumness was a sign that he recognised defeat. 2. The next episode between them was curiously brief. Denry had influenza. He said that naturally he had caught hers. He went to bed and stayed there. She nursed him all day, and grew angry in a vain attempt to force him to eat. Towards night he tossed furiously on the little bed in the little bedroom, complaining of fearful headaches. She remained by his side most of the night. In the morning he was easier. Neither of them mentioned the word doctor. She spent the day largely on the stairs. Once more towards night he grew worse, and she remained most of the second night by his side. In the sinister winter dawn, Denry murmured in a feeble tone, "'Mother, you'd better send for him.' "'Doctor,' she said, and secretly she thought that she had better send for the doctor, and that there must be, after all, some difference between influenza and a cold. "'No,' said Denry, "'send for young Lawton.' "'Young Lawton?' she exclaimed. "'What do you want young Lawton to come here for?' "'I haven't made my will,' Denry answered. "'Oh!' she retorted. Nevertheless, she was the least bit in the world frightened, and she sent for Dr. Stirling, the aged Harrop's Scotch partner. Dr. Stirling, who was full-bodied, and left little space for anybody else in the tiny, shabby bedroom of the man with four thousand a year, gazed at Mrs. Machin, and he gazed also at Denry. "'You must go to bed this minute!' said he. "'But he is in bed,' cried Mrs. Machin. "'I mean yourself,' said Dr. Stirling. She was very nearly at the end of her resources, and the proof was that she had no strength left to fight Dr. Stirling. She did go to bed, and shortly afterwards Denry got up, and a little later Rose Chud, that prim and efficient young widow from lower down the street, came into the house and controlled it as if it had been her own. Mrs. Machin, whose constitution was hardy, arose in about a week, cured, and duly dismissed Rose, with wages and without thanks. But Rose had been. Like the signal's burglars, she had effected an entrance, and the house had not been turned upside down. Mrs. Machin, though she tried, could not find fault with the results of Rose's uncontrolled activities. 3. One morning, and not very long afterwards, in such wise did fate seem to favour the young at the expense of the old, Mrs. Machin received two letters which alarmed and disgusted her. One was from her landlord, announcing that he had sold the house in which she lived to a Mr. Wilbraham of London, and that in future she must pay the rent to the said Mr. Wilbraham or his legal representatives. The other was from a firm of London solicitors, announcing that their client, Mr. Wilbraham, had bought the house and that the rent must be paid to their agent, whom they would name later. 
Mrs. Machin gave vent to her emotion in her customary manner. "'Bless us!' And she showed the impudent letters to Denry. "'Oh!' said Denry. "'So he has bought them, has he? I heard he was going to.' "'Them?' exclaimed Mrs. Machin. "'What else has he bought?' "'I expect he's bought all the five, this and the four below, as far as Downs. "'I expect you'll find that the other four have had notices just like these. "'You know all this row used to belong to the Wilbrahams. "'You surely must remember that, Mother.' "'Is he one of the Wilbrahams of Hillport, then?' "'Yes, of course he is.' "'I thought the last of them was Cecil, "'and when he'd beggared himself here he went to Australia and died of drink. "'That's what I always heard.' "'We always used to say, as there wasn't a Wilbraham left. "'He did go to Australia, but he didn't die of drink. "'He disappeared. "'And when he'd made a fortune, he turned up again in Sydney, so it seems. "'I heard he's thinking of coming back here to settle. "'Anyhow, he's buying up a lot of the Wilbraham property. "'I should have thought you'd have heard of it. "'Why, lots of people have been talking about it.' "'Well,' said Mrs. Machin, "'I don't like it.' She objected to a law which permitted a landlord to sell a house over the head of a tenant who had occupied it for more than thirty years. In the course of the morning she discovered that Denry was right. The other tenants had received notices, exactly similar to hers. Two days later Denry arrived home for tea with a most surprising article of news. Mr. Cecil Wilbraham had been down to Bursley from London, and had visited him, Denry. Mr. Cecil Wilbraham's local information was evidently quite out of date, for he had imagined Denry to be a rent-collector and estate agent, whereas the fact was that Denry had abandoned this mine of occasion years ago. His desire had been that Denry should collect his rents and watch over his growing interests in the district. "'So what did you tell him?' asked Mrs. Machin. "'I told him I'd do it,' said Denry. "'Why?' "'I thought it might be safer for you,' said Denry, with a certain emphasis. "'And besides, it looked as if it might be a bit of a lark. "'He's a very peculiar chap.' "'Peculiar? "'For one thing, he's got the largest moustaches of any man I ever saw, "'and there's something up with his left eye. "'Now I think he's a bit mad.' "'Mad?' "'Well, touched. "'He's got a notion about building a funny sort of house for himself "'on a plot of land at Bleakridge.' "'It appears he's fond of living alone, "'and he's collected all kinds of dodges "'for doing without servants, still being comfortable.' "'Aye, but he's right there,' breathed Mrs. Machin in deep sympathy. "'As she said about once a week, "'she never could abide the idea of servants. "'He's not married, then,' she added. "'He told me he'd been a widower three times, "'but he'd never had any children,' said Denry. "'Bless us!' murmured Mrs. Machin. Denry was the one person in the town who enjoyed the acquaintance and the confidence of the thrice-widowed stranger with long moustaches. He had descended without notice on Bursley, seen Denry at the branch office of the thrift club, and then departed. It was understood that later he would permanently settle in the district. Then the wonderful house began to rise on the plot of land at Bleakridge. Denry had general charge of it, but always subject to erratic and autocratic instructions from London. Thanks to Denry, who, since the historic episode at Llandidno, had remained very friendly with the Cotterill family, Mr. Cotterill had the job of building the house. The plans came from London. 
and though Mr. Cecil Wilbraham proved to be exceedingly watchful against any form of imposition, the job was a remunerative one for Mr. Cotterill, who talked a great deal about the originality of the residence. The town judged of the wealth and importance of Mr. Cecil Wilbraham by the fact that a person so wealthy and important as Denry should be content to act as his agent. But then the Wilbrahams had been magnates in the Bursley region for generations, up till the final Wilbraham smash in the late seventies. The town hungered to see those huge moustaches and that peculiar eye. In addition to Denry, only one person had seen the madman, and that person was Nellie Cotterill, who had been viewing the half-built house with Denry one Sunday morning, when the madman had most astonishingly arrived upon the scene, and after a few minutes vanished. The building of the house strengthened greatly the friendship between Denry and the Cotterills, yet Denry neither liked Mr. Cotterill nor trusted him. The next incident in this happening was that Mrs. Machin received notice from the London firm to quit her four-and-sixpence-a-week cottage. It seemed to her that not merely Broom Street, but the world, was coming to an end. She was very angry with Denry for not protecting her more successfully. He was Mr. Wilbraham's agent, he collected the rent, and it was his duty to guard his mother from unpleasantness. She observed, however, that he was remarkably disturbed by the notice, and he assured her that Mr. Wilbraham had not consulted him in the matter at all. He wrote a letter to London, which she signed, demanding the reason of this absurd notice flung at an ancient and perfect tenant. The reply was that Mr. Wilbraham intended to pull the houses down, beginning with Mrs. Machin's, and rebuild. Pooh, said Denry. "'Don't you worry ahead, mother. I shall arrange it. "'He'll be down here soon to see his new house. "'It's practically finished, and the furniture's coming in. "'And I'll just talk to him.' "'But Mr. Wilbraham did not come, "'the explanation doubtless being that he was mad. "'On the other hand, fresh notices came with amazing frequency. "'Mrs. Machin just handed them over to Denry. And then Denry received a telegram to say that Mr. Wilbraham would be at his new house that night, and wished to see Denry there. Unfortunately, on the same day, by the afternoon post, while Denry was at his offices, there arrived a sort of supreme and ultimate notice from London to Mrs. Machin, and it was on blue paper. It stated, baldly, that as Mrs. Machin had failed to comply with all the previous notices, had indeed ignored them, she and her goods would now be ejected into the street according to the law. It gave her twenty-four hours' notice to flit. Never had a respectable dame been so insulted as Mrs. Machin was insulted by that notice. The prospect of camping out in Broom Street confronted her. When Denry reached home that evening, Mrs. Machin, as the phrase is, gave it him. Denry admitted frankly that he was nonplussed, staggered, and outraged. But the thing was simply another proof of Mr. Wilbraham's madness. After tea he decided that his mother must put on her best clothes and go up with him to see Mr. Wilbraham and firmly expostulate. In fact, they would arrange the situation between them, and if Mr. Wilbraham was obstinate, they would defy Mr. Wilbraham. Denry explained to his mother that an Englishwoman's cottage was her castle, that our landlord's minions had no right to force an entrance and that the one thing that Mr. Wilbraham could do was to begin unbuilding the cottage from the top, outside, and he would like to see Mr. Wilbraham try it on. So the sealskin mantle, for it was spring again, went up with Denry to Bleakridge. 
4. The moon shone in the chill night. The house stood back from Trafalgar Road in the moonlight, a squarish block of a building. "'Oh,' said Mrs. Machin, "'it isn't so large.' "'No, he didn't want it large. He only wanted it large enough,' said Denry, and pushed a button to the right of the front door. There was no reply, though they heard the ringing of the bell inside. They waited. Mrs. Machin was very nervous, but thanks to her sealskin mantle she was not cold. "'This is a funny doorstep,' she remarked, to kill time. "'It's of marble,' said Denry. "'What's that for?' asked his mother. "'So much easier to keep clean,' said Denry. "'Well,' said Mrs. Machin, "'it's pretty dirty now, anyway.' "'It was.' "'Quite simple to clean,' said Denry, bending down. "'You just turn this tap at the side. "'You see, it's so arranged that it sends a flat jet along the step. "'Stand off for a second. "'He turned the tap, and the step was washed pure in a moment.' "'How is it that that water steams?' Mrs. Machin demanded. "'Because it's hot,' said Denry. "'Did you ever know water steam for any other reason?' "'Hot water outside?' "'Just as easy to have hot water outside as inside, isn't it?' said Denry. "'Well, I never!' exclaimed Mrs. Machin. She was impressed. "'That's how everything's dodged up in this house,' said Denry. He shut off the water, and he rang once again. No answer. No illumination within the abode. "'I'll tell you what I shall do,' said Denry, at length. "'I shall let myself in. I've got a key of the back door.' "'Are you sure it's all right?' "'I don't care if it isn't all right,' said Denry defiantly. "'He asked me to be up here, and he ought to be here to meet me. I'm not going to stand any nonsense from anybody.' In they went, having skirted round the walls of the house. Denry closed the door pushed the switch, and the electric light shone. Electric light was then quite a novelty in Bursley. Mrs. Machin had never seen it in action. She had to admit that it was less complicated than oil lamps. In the kitchen the electric light blazed upon walls tiled in grey and a floor tiled in black and white. There was a gas range and a marble slopstone with two taps. The woodwork was dark. Earthenware saucepans stood on a shelf, the cupboards were full of gear, chiefly in earthenware. Dendry began to exhibit to his mother a tank provided with ledges and shelves and grooves, in which he said everything except knives could be washed and dried automatically. "'Hadn't you better go and find your Mr. Wilbraham?' she interrupted. "'So I had,' said Denry. "'I was forgetting him.' She heard him wandering over the house, and calling in divers tones upon Mr. Wilbraham, but she heard no other voice. Meanwhile, she examined the kitchen in detail, appreciating some of its devices, and failing to comprehend others. "'I expect he's missed the train,' said Denry, coming back. "'Anyhow, he isn't here. I may as well show you the rest of the house now.' He led her into the hall, which was radiantly lighted. "'It's quite warm here,' said Mrs. Machin. "'The whole house is heated by steam,' said Denry. "'No fireplaces.' "'No fireplaces?' "'No, no fireplaces. "'No grates to polish, ashes to carry down, "'coals to carry up, mantelpieces to dust, "'fire-irons to clean, fenders to polish, "'chimneys to sweep. "'And suppose he wants a bit of a fire all of a sudden in summer?' "'Gas-stove in every room for emergencies,' said Denry. 
She glanced into a room. "'But,' she cried, "'it's all complete, ready, and as warm as toast.' "'Yes,' said Denry, "'he gave orders. I can't think why on earth he isn't here.' At that moment an electric bell rang loud and sharp, and Mrs. Machin jumped. "'There he is,' said Denry, moving to the door. "'Bless us! What will he think of us being here like?' Mrs. Machin mumbled. "Pooh," said Denry, carelessly, and he opened the door. Five. Three persons stood on the newly washed marble step, Mr. and Mrs. Cotterill and their daughter. "'Oh, come in, come in. Make yourselves quite at home. That's what we're doing,' said Denry, in blithe greeting, and added, "'I suppose he's invited you, too?' And it appeared that Mr. Cecil Wilbraham had indeed invited them, too. He had written from London, saying that he would be glad if Mr. and Mrs. Cotterill would drop in on this particular evening. Further, he had mentioned that, as he had already had the pleasure of meeting Miss Cotterill, perhaps she would accompany her parents. "'Well, he isn't here,' said Denry, shaking hands. "'He must have missed his train or something. He can't possibly be here now until to-morrow. But the house seems to be all ready for him.' "'Yes, my word. And how's yourself, Mrs. Cotterill?' put in Mrs. Machin. "'So we may as well look over it in its finished state.' "'I suppose that's what he's asked us up for,' Denry concluded. Mrs. Machin explained quickly and nervously that she had not been compromised in any invitation, that her errand was pure business. "'Come on upstairs,' Denry called out, turning switches and adding radiance to radiance. "'Denry,' his mother protested, "'I'm sure I don't know what Mr. and Mrs. Cotterill will think of you. You carry on as if you owned everything in the place. I wonder at you.' "'Well,' said Denry, "'if anybody in this town is the owner's agent, I am. "'And Mr. Cottrell has built the blessed house. "'If Wilbraham wanted to keep his old shanty to himself, "'he shouldn't send out invitations. "'It's simple enough not to send out invitations. "'Now, Nellie, he was hanging over the balustrade at the curve of the stairs. "'The familiar ease with which he said, "'Now, Nellie,' and especially the spontaneity of Nellie's instant response— put new thoughts into the mind of Mrs. Machin. But she neither pricked up her ears, nor started back, nor accomplished any of the acrobatic feats which an ordinary mother of a wealthy son would have performed under similar circumstances. Her ears did not even tremble, and she just said, "'I like this balustrade knob being of black china.' "'Every knob in the house is of black china,' said Denry. "'Never shows dirt. But if you should take it into your head to clean it, "'You can do it with a damp cloth in a second. "'Nellie now stood beside him. "'Nellie had grown up since the Llandidno episode. "'She did not blush at a glance. "'When spoken to suddenly, she could answer without torture to herself. "'She could, in fact, maintain a conversation without breaking down "'for a much longer time than, a few years back, "'she had been able to skip without breaking down. "'She no longer imagined that all the people in the street were staring at her. "'anxious to find faults in her appearance. "'She had temporarily ruined the lives of several amiable and fairly innocent young men "'by refusing to marry them, for she was pretty, and her father cut a figure in the town, though her mother did not. "'And yet, despite the immense accumulation of her experiences, "'and the weight of her varied knowledge of human nature, "'there was something very girlish and timidly roguish about her, as she stood on the stairs near Denry.' "'waiting for the elder generation to follow. 
The old Nellie still lived in her. The party passed to the first floor, and the first floor exceeded the ground floor in marvels. In each bedroom two aluminium taps poured hot and cold water, respectively, into a marble basin, and below the marble basin was a sink. No portrait of water anywhere in the house. The water came to you, and every room consumed its own slops. The bedsteads were of black enamelled iron, and very light. The floors were covered with linoleum, with a few rugs that could be shaken with one hand. The walls were painted with grey enamel. Mrs. Cotterill, with her all-seeing eye, observed a detail that Mrs. Machin had missed. There were no sharp corners anywhere. Every corner, every angle between wall and floor, or wall and wall, was rounded, to facilitate cleaning. And every wall, floor, ceiling, and fixture could be washed, and all the furniture was enamelled, and could be wiped with a cloth in a moment, instead of having to be polished with three cloths and as many odours in a day and a half. The bathroom was absolutely waterproof. You could spray it with a hose, and by means of a gas apparatus you could produce an endless supply of hot water, independent of the general supply. Denry was apparently familiar with each detail of Mr. Wilbraham's manifold contrivances, and he explained them with an enormous gusto. "'Bless us!' said Mrs. Machin. "'Bless us!' said Mrs. Cotterill, doubtless the force of example. They descended to the dining-room, where a supper-table had been laid by order of the invisible Mr. Cecil Wilbraham, and there the ladies lauded Mr. Wilbraham's wisdom in eschewing silver. Everything of the table service that could be of earthenware was of earthenware. The forks and spoons were electro-plate. "'Why,' Mrs. Cotterill said, "'I could run this house without a servant, and have myself tidy by ten o'clock in the morning.' And Mrs. Machin nodded. "'And then, when you want a regular turn-out, as you call it,' said Denry, "'there's the vacuum-cleaner.' The vacuum-cleaner was at that period the last word of civilization, and the first agency for it was being set up in Bursley. Denry explained the vacuum-cleaner to the housewives, who had got no further than a U-bank, and they again called down blessings on themselves. "'What price this supper?' Denry exclaimed. "'We ought to eat it. I'm sure he'd like us to eat it. Do sit down, all of you. I'll take the consequences.' Mrs. Machin hesitated even more than the other ladies. "'It's really very strange, him not being here.' She shook her head. "'Don't I tell you he's quite mad?' said Denry. "'I shouldn't think he was so mad as all that,' said Mrs. Machin, dryly. "'This is the most sensible kind of house I've ever seen.' "'Oh, is it?' Denry answered. "'Great Scott! I never noticed those three bottles of wine on the sideboard.' At length he succeeded in seating them at table. Thenceforth there was no difficulty— the ample and diversified cold supper began to disappear steadily, and the wine with it. And as the wine disappeared, so did Mr. Cotterill, who had been pompous and taciturn, grow talkative, offering to the company the exact figures of the cost of the house, and so forth. But ultimately the sheer joy of life killed arithmetic. Mrs. Machin, however, could not quite rid herself of the notion that she was in a dream that outraged the proprieties. The entire affair for an unromantic spot like Bursley was too fantastically and wickedly romantic. "'We must be thinking about home, Denry,' said she. "'Plenty of time,' Denry replied. "'What, all that wine gone? I'll see if there's any more in the sideboard.' He emerged with a red face from bending into the deeps of the enamelled sideboard, 
and a wine-bottle was in his triumphant hand. It had already been opened. "'Hooray!' he proclaimed, pouring a white wine into his glass, and raising the glass. "'Here's to the health of Mr. Cecil Wilbraham.' He made a brave tableau in the brightness of the electric light. Then he drank. Then he dropped the glass, which broke. Ugh! "'What's that?' he demanded, with the distorted features of a gargoyle. His mother, who was seated next to him, seized the bottle. Denry's hand, in clasping the bottle, had hidden a small label, which said, "'Poison. Nettleship's patent enamel-cleaning fluid. One wipe does it.' Confusion! Only Nellie Cottrell seemed to be incapable of realising that a grave accident had occurred. She had laughed throughout the supper, and she still laughed, hysterically, though she had drunk scarcely any wine. Her mother silenced her. Denry was the first to recover. "'It'll be all right,' said he, leaning back in his chair. "'They always put a bit of poison in those things. Can't hurt me, really. I never noticed the label.' Mrs. Machin smelt at the bottle. She could detect no odour. But the fact that she could detect no odour appeared only to increase her alarm. "'You must have an emetic instantly,' she said. "'Oh, no,' said Denry. "'I shall be all right.' And he did seem to be suddenly restored. "'You must have an emetic instantly,' she repeated. "'What can I have?' he grumbled. "'You can't expect to find emetics here.' "'Oh, yes, I can,' said she. "'I saw a mustard tin in a cupboard in the kitchen. "'Come along now, and don't be silly.' Nellie's hysteric mirth surged up again. Denry objected to accompanying his mother into the kitchen, but he was forced to submit. She shut the door on both of them. It is probable that during the seven minutes which they spent mysteriously together in the kitchen, the practicability of the kitchen apparatus for carrying off waste products was duly tested. Denry came forth, very pale and very cross, on his mother's arm. "'There's no danger now,' said his mother easily. Naturally, the party was at an end. The Cotterills sympathised and prepared to depart, and inquired whether Denry could walk home. Denry replied from a sofa, in a weak, expiring voice, that he was perfectly incapable of walking home, that his sensations were in the highest degree disconcerting, that he should sleep in that house, as the bedrooms were ready for occupation, and that he should expect his mother to remain also. And Mrs. Machin had to concur. Mrs. Machin sped the Cotterills from the door, as though it had been her own door, she was exceedingly angry and agitated, but she could not impart her feelings to the suffering Denry. He moaned on a bed for about half an hour, and then fell asleep, and in the middle of the night, in the dark, strange house, she also fell asleep. 6. The next morning she arose and went forth, and in about half an hour returned. Denry was still in bed, but his health seemed to have resumed its normal excellence. Mrs. Machin burst in upon him, in such a state of complicated excitement as he had never before seen her in. "'Denry!' she cried. "'What do you think?' "'What?' said he. "'I've just been down home, and they're, they're pulling the house down, all the furniture's out, and they've got all the tiles off the roof, and the windows out, and there's a regular crowd watching.' Denry sat up. "'And I can tell you another piece of news,' said he. "'Mr. Cecil Wilbraham is dead.' "'Dead?' she breathed. "'Yes,' said Denry. "'I think he's served his purpose. "'As we're here, we'll stop here. "'Don't forget it's the most sensible kind of a house you've ever seen. 
Don't forget that Mrs. Cotterill could run it without a servant and have herself tidy by ten o'clock in the morning. Mrs. Machin perceived then, in a flash of terrible illumination, that there never had been any Cecil Wilbraham, that Denry had merely invented him, and his long moustaches, and his wall eye, for the purpose of getting the better of his mother. The whole affair was an immense swindle upon her. Not a Mr. Cecil Wilbraham, but her own son had bought her cottage over her head, and jockeyed her out of it, beyond any chance of getting into it again. And to defeat his mother, the rascal had not simply perverted the innocent Nellie Cotterill to some co-operation in his scheme, but he had actually bought four other cottages, because the landlord would not sell one alone, and he was actually demolishing property to the sole end of stopping her from re-entering it. Of course the entire town soon knew the upshot of the battle, of the year-long battle between Denry and his mother, and the means adopted by Denry to win. The town also had been hoodwinked, but it did not mind that. It loved its Denry the more, and seeing that he was now properly established in the most remarkable house in the district, it soon afterwards made him a town councillor, as some reward for his talent in amusing it. And Denry would say to himself— Everything went like clockwork, except the mustard and water. I didn't bargain for the mustard and water. And yet, if I was clever enough to think of putting a label on the bottle, and to have the beds prepared, I ought to have been clever enough to keep mustard out of the house. It would be wrong to mince the unpleasant fact that the sham poisoning which he had arranged to the end that he and his mother should pass the night in the house had finished in a manner much too realistic for Denry's pleasure. Mustard and water, particularly when mixed by Mrs. Machin, is mustard and water. She had that consolation. End of chapter 8 When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.